Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Hi. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org. Or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada Grand Rapids. Well, it is a new year. But, of course, with this new year, we get some new antics from our very favorite pointy-hatted friend, Pope Ratzinger. I guess these really aren't new antics for him, are they? It's kind of... Uh, same old news. No, no. It is it is the same old focus on PR and looking good that we get from the Vatican. We're, of course, referring to Pope Benedict's message, uh, his Christmas message, which I'm guessing many of our listeners have probably heard something about by now. Well, in in the Pope's Christmas message, a lot of it was just fine. It, a lot of it can be yeah, typical yeah. stuff. But there was this one line that is just particularly grating on my nerves. Benedict says in his address, he said, Catholics, quote, have to do everything in our power to put an end to the suffering of these children. Which children are these? The, you know, the general abuse of children, which is a problem worldwide, of course, and we should do everything in our power to put an end uh, to the suffering of these children. Mm -hmm. But coming from the Pope, This really means nothing to me because the Catholic Church has still not taken the right steps in correcting this, you know, major worldwide child abuse scandal. What do you want, Jeremy? They've transferred the priests to different dioceses. What do you want? (laughs) What more could you you possibly want? Dioceses where the children are less likely to complain. Well, some could say, well, why why are you being so tough on them? Isn't this a good thing? Maybe they're turning over a new leaf. In fact, there's some evidence that they have. This article from the Christian Post, Vatican issues screening guidelines for priests. Well, that's that's good, right? The Catholic Church is trying to implement uh, new psychological screening guidelines. They're starting at the very beginning in the seminaries where they're going to be doing their recruitment and training for priests. Sure. Catch them early. Yeah. That's it, kind of the Catholic motto, isn't it? <laughs> it sounds like they're trying to make some sort of effort in this area. The article says the Vatican issued new psychological screening guidelines for seminarians Thursday, the latest effort by the Roman Catholic Church to be more selective about its priesthood candidates following a series of sex abuse scandals. The church said it issued the new guidelines to help church leaders weed out candidates with psychopathic disturbances. Because a lot of psychopaths apparently say, I think I'd like to be a priest. I was going to be a con man, but, uh, you know, those priests, they'll take anybody. Potato, potato, you know. But I think when you take a closer look at what are these screening guidelines for the priests, it's not really a step in the right direction. They're not addressing the major problem, which is how is their hierarchy actually dealing with this? When you look at these guidelines, it, it really just reflects more of 
Roman Catholic sexual prejudices mm-hmm. than it does any realistic way to try to combat these things. Right. The screening guidelines address problems like, quote, uh, confused or not yet well-defined sexual identities of future priests. <clears throat> so so what, what does that mean, first of all? Confused or not yet well-defined sexual identities? Right. The article says... The Vatican also directed evaluators to look for evidence of homosexuality in these schools. Because that is the problem. It's those homosexuals who are causing all of the trouble. Yeah, I think as somebody who has experience in psych screening, the problem always is it's difficult to assess future behavior often, especially if somebody is motivated to conceal that. So if you have a questionnaire that says, you know, are you confused about your sexual identity? What are you going to say? <laughs> and, yeah. and that's also, if they're screened out for psychopathic tendencies, that's assuming that people who are ab- abuse kids are, are necessarily psychopathic. And a lot of the pedophiles rationalize their behavior by saying, I love children, you know, I'm a Michael Jackson type. Well, maybe they don't say that. But they're like, uh, I, you know, I want to take care of them. And so, so rather than saying I would hurt a child or anything like that, they're going to come off as being benevolent looking mm-hmm. for things. The, the other problem they're avoiding simply is that the, this whole repression of sexuality in general thing. Right. Uh, they're, they're ignoring the institutional conditions of saying we want our people to be sexually celibate. Right. And well, if, and if, they're if, alleging a connection between homosexuality and child abuse. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I mean, what's, what's the data on that? Luke, are you familiar with any yeah, data that suggests that pedophiles... People look, often when they see that, that boys are... Uh, boy children are likely to be more often abused by male pedophiles, they say... They equate that with homosexuality. So right. it is technically true that often pedophiles might selectively target boys. And so only in that sense are they homosexual because the right. the, the same sex. But what, what's a more correct way of putting that is is that they are attracted to children. Right. And right. It's not, the youth that they're attracted to, right. not the sex. And so it's it's not, you know, most uh, the vast majority of homosexual men have no inclination to be attracted to boys, prepubescent boys. Any more than heterosexual <laughs> yeah. uh, men are attracted to prepubescent children. So when, these screen, so when these screening guidelines are implemented, as a Vatican document says, uh, when they look for uh, men with deep-seated homosexual tendencies and say they shouldn't be ordained, but those, those with a with transitory seated homosexual <laughs> they say those with a transitory problem could become priests if they had overcome them for three years. What is you know? Mean? They're essentially they're they're looking for the wrong thing to measure. Well, if you yeah, how you're, homosexual do you feel? And the more homosexual you feel, I think there's been some informal studies that show that there's a high uh, incidence of priests being gay, like you know just adult gay uh, men right. for many you know reasons as you might imagine they might be drawn to a field if you're religious and uncomfortable with your homosexuality, they might figure, hey, here's a profession where I won't have to worry about that because I'll Right, be if you're feeling celibate. this enormous guilt, then go somewhere where you don't have yeah. to deal with it. But but then again, like we said, they're confusing that, though, with somehow that's going to, de- if you screen out those men, you're going to decrease the incidence of pedophilia. It doesn't follow. It's just, it's just a non sequitur. Right. The article says the guidelines say priests must have a must also have a positive and stable sense of one's masculine identity. Oh. Ah, yes, yes, mm-hmm. that'll take care of it. Yep. And the capacity to integrate his sexuality in accordance with the obligation of celibacy. What does that mean? Because even even uh, self integrate is his sexuality. Out, <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know. Blue balls, blue balls all around. You can't say that. I don't think we can say that. (laughs) Not on the radio anyways, (laughs) but you podcast listeners. 
You'll get the uh, the unrated version. Mm-hmm. Yes. So in other words, these Vatican screening guidelines, what are these going to do to really right. solve the problem? I, mean, I think if the Pope wants to be taken seriously by people like us, there are some easy things that he can do get to try to show. Hat, yeah. <laughs> first and foremost. And the red Gucci slippers? Yep. Just yeah. wear some Sending pants. Sending mixed messages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there are some very easy things he could do to show that the Catholic Church is serious about combating the problem of child abuse. This suggestion comes from our good good friend of the show, Ed Brayton. Ed Brayton's been on the show before, mm-hmm. writer of, of the Dispatches from the Culture Wars blog, and also now has a, has a podcast and radio show of his own, Declaring Independence, uh, also a reality radio program. Yeah, I think amazing we'll, coincidence, yeah, really. I, I think we'll have him on the show to talk about that sometime soon. Excellent. Ed Brayton's suggestion is pretty straight and to the point. He says, well, gosh, here's an idea, Benny. Stop harboring pedophile priests and those who enable them. And he brings up, as an example, Cardinal Law, who harbored multiple felons and moved them from church to church so they could abuse more children, Mm -hmm. holds a number of positions of authority in Rome after being forced to resign from the Boston Diocese for helping cover up the crimes of Paul Shanley, Robert Gale, Father Joseph Birmingham, and John Gagoyan. Is that correct? That was one of the ones, I think, in Boston who had a particularly long history of cases. With a name like Cardinal Law, I mean, how can he be bad? <laughs> I am the law. He, yeah, he sounds, sounds like, like a, the a Dirty Harry of the Vatican. Law. <laughs> We're declaring to, Cardinal Law. You know, I'm he's walking around with a holy hand grenade just looking for a place to throw it. <laughs> well, he might start with himself. Um, Go the, in peace. <laughs> <laughs> Vaya con Dios. <laughs> Cardinal Law, whose full name is uh, Bernard Francis Law. Bernie Frank Law. You you might remember him from his time spent as the Archbishop of Boston. He was in charge when that whole scandal came out. And yes, he moved child molesters, some of them who later became convicted child molesters. Mm -hmm. He moved them from parish to parish within the diocese, even though he was continually getting reports of child abuse. And Although he claimed that he was doing something to try to stop all of this, there's tons of evidence to the contrary. There's a very good PBS frontline documentary that goes over this in a detail. Hmm. The, the name of the documentary is The Hand of God, and definitely one worth checking out. This guy is really a creep, but he resigned. He submitted his resignation to the Vatican and Pope John Paul uh, on December thirteenth, two 2002, and what did they do shortly after that? They promoted him. What? They brought him from the States to the Vatican. Uh-huh. They promoted him. Now he is currently the archpriest of the Basilica de Santa Maria Magalore. He's also a member of the congregations of the Oriental Churches, Clergy, Divine Worship, and Discipline of the Sacraments, Evangelization of the Peoples, Institute of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life, and get this— he also heads the Pontifical Council for the Family. Nice. The Pontifical Council for the Family. This is their uh, mission statement. This? Yes, they. Oh, this, this council is in charge of promoting the pastoral care of families, protecting their rights and dignity in the church and in civil society, so that they may ever be more able to fulfill their duties. So, the Vatican body that's in charge of 
helping Looking families' out for rights. And, yep. Yeah. We, we have somebody who concealed and protected pedophiles for a large portion of his of his career. How does that happen? It happens at an institution that is completely messed up and think that they are above the law. Right. Right. And this is their way of of helping to protect those little children who are being abused all over the world. Why, Thank why you, aren't, Pope you know, Benedict. What I don't get to ca- from Catholic apologists is why do you defend these guys? Yeah. Why isn't there a major crackdown and reform? Why do we tolerate declarations from the Pope like this? When he hasn't made – look, they're not going to do anything helping children unless they're able to make just very simple, rational, Mm -hmm. moral decisions like kicking this guy law out on the street. Worse, helping him get prosecuted as an accomplice to rape. Yeah. Here's another suggestion. Uh, That was the one that Ed Brayton brought up. Uh, I'd like to offer one uh, of our own from the Reasonable Doubts podcast. If you go back to, I think, our, like our second episode, mm-hmm. we talked about the uh, the payout of the Los Angeles Archdiocese. Going way um, back. Yeah, yeah. When they settled their lawsuit with Cardinal Mahoney, I believe, was the, the person involved in that. That sounds right. And we talked about Pope Ratzinger's own role that he played mm-hmm. in this child abuse cover-up. We talk about it in more detail in a previous episode, so I'll just give the basic here. But in May 2001, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, at the time he was the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, he sent a letter to all Catholic bishops declaring that the church's investigations into claims of child sex abuse were subject to pontifical secret. What this means is that they would not be reported into uh, to law enforcement until the investigations within the Vatican were complete. I'm sure giving them time to shuffle these guys around, bring them back to Rome, whatever they need to do. And this declaration by then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger was actually – it was implemented on pain of excommunication. In other words, if you had reason to believe Mm -hmm. that a priest was molesting a child, if you took it to law enforcement before the church uh, was able to do their own investigation and get involved with it – you would be excommunicated from the church. Theologically, that means your soul will go to hell. Right. So that, that's that's the pains that they took. Now, I, I should say, just as a point of clarification, this only related to um, cases that were not yet already under investigation from the okay. police. And those, so any new cases. Yeah, protecting which, their asses, they yeah. knew that in those situations they would have to cooperate. Right. But come on. Mm-hmm. Really, if they're that serious about doing everything they can to stop the abuse of children, I think the pope himself should resign. That would be a matter of integrity. Sure. That's likely to happen. Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and hold my breath on that one. Yeah. So, you know, Catholic Church, go ahead and believe what you want to believe. I have no problem with you praying to Mary and and everything else. But stand by what you're going to say. If you're right. going to say that Paramount is protecting children, then you have to go ahead and and do that and not screen for homosexuality, not shuffle priests around. You have to take the actual steps to help correct the situation, not just things that are going to sound good. Otherwise, by definition, you're a hypocrite. Right. Well, uh, speaking of hypocrisy and sex scandals, um, we turn stateside to our our very favorite uh, math addict, Ted Haggard, who's back in the news. 
Hey, he said he didn't actually take the meth. He, that's that's right. He never he took just the had meth. A purchase for him. Right. Ted Haggard has a new documentary coming out. Um, a documentary called "The Trials of Ted Haggard," which um, and and I thought this was kind of cool, is actually directed by Nancy Pelosi's daughter. Yeah, she it did uh, trials with George, the one about being on the George W. Bush campaign. Oh, did airplane. you really? Yeah, all these. Yeah, given that she's this, the daughter of the Speaker of the House, you'd think there'd be some antagonism. But some of the portrait right. was kind of sympathetic. He's you know generally really? amiable guy on the tr- campaign. So this may not just be some some evil liberal tirade against um, homosexuality and math. Uh, wait, that Could doesn't be. make sense. Um, so anyway, Ted Haggard, uh, the trials of Ted Haggard, which will be on HBO later this month. Ted Haggard, who um, now says that he never says he was heterosexual and has admitted to struggling with his sexuality uh, throughout his life. I thought we heard earlier that he was completely cured. We did hear that. In fact, I think we talked about that on a previous episode as well. But um, now he's saying, I think sexuality is confusing and complex. But when asked to define his sexuality, the article says... That Haggard replied, the stereotypical boxes don't work for me. My story's got some gray areas in it, and of course I'm sad about that, but it's the reality. Hmm. Yes, he has confessed to undisclosed, quote, sexual immorality, and he now says that I really did sin. He struggles with his sexuality, and that's okay, Ted. That really is, so long as you hadn't spent the better part of your career railing against homosexuality and the evils of uh, the gay agenda and all of that. At one point, Haggard actually seems to be pretty – to say that he he took away something from this as a lesson, the amount of hate and condemnation that's lumped on homosexuals. He firsthand has witnessed how painful this can be and thinks that that some of that is wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to know how to deal with this. I mean, he is he seems apologetic. He seems to be coming around to a a more sympathetic position. But at the same time, well, yeah, he's apologizing, but he's he still thinks that the homosexuality is wrong. Right. And that's part of what he's apologetic. He suffers from this. Right. So he has more sympathy. You know, he. He wants people to not be as angry and, and hateful and everything right. else. But he still is convinced that at, at the heart of it, this homosexuality is a grave sin. Yeah. Not not the uh, being a hypocrite about it. Not, right, <laughs> right. not oppressing homosexuals and trying to uh, trying to stop the homosexual agenda. He doesn't find – that's not what he's apologetic about. It's about his own – Right, right. That uh, That deep down this is some kind of – aberration in him that that he should have to apologize for and and he is saying in, in telling people to be less judgmental i guess in, in a way but meanwhile saying be less judgmental of this horrible sin that we carry that's right you know that's right um i might tune in to see the documentary though because it, it listening to uh descriptions of some of the stuff in there um it, it, it involves <laughs> Uh, I, at some point, uh, it mentions him uh, traveling from hotel room to hotel room, try, looking for a job, trying to be a salesman, yeah. and talking about him sitting in a hotel room talking about what a loser he is yep. and everything else. All like sounds that. very Willie Loman, <laughs> you know. It's 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 great. Yeah, so it might be uh, might be one worth checking out just to see 
what is an interesting story yes. played out. This seems like a repeating theme. Do you remember in the 80s, the Jim and Tammy uh, Baker, Tammy Faye Baker thing? There were uh, evangelicals, and he was brought down with financial right, wrongdoing right. and everything and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the fair. And then she became a kind of an icon in the gay movement because she met gays through the process of, you know, uh, of, of all this downfall. And then she actually, mm-hmm. you know, became more sympathetic towards their cause. And, and she and Jim J. Bullock were uh, co-hosted a talk show and were best buddies. Mm-hmm. Um they have a documentary about her to the eyes of Tammy Faye. Uh, have you seen that? No, I haven't seen I that, but I I apparently it's, it's... Is she the one with the big, like, Priscilla Presley yeah. beehive hair? And uh, well, she has a lot of... She was famous for a lot of, like, eye makeup, and she, she yeah. did a lot of crooning and singing and stuff, and when she, she actually, would cry, the makeup would run. Right, she actually got the eye makeup tattooed on um, before <laughs> before her death. Like um, Mimi from Drew Carey, like a yeah. real life. I wonder if she was the inspiration for I, that. I suspect she probably was, at least for the, the appearance. So... Um, yeah, so Ted Haggard is is back and um, more fabulous than ever, and I think he's also going to be making an appearance on Oprah sometime in the next month. Yay! It's amazing how um, can they have Tom Cruise on the same episode? Maybe it's not only the couch <laughs> that'll get jumped. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. Uh. Well, and that's as far as we're going to go with that. I think. Um, probably a step or six further than we should have. So, you know, we're giving uh, Ted Haggard and uh, the Pope a lot of crap for uh, some poor decisions they've made and all that. But but is that really fair? I mean, is it their fault? Did, did they make those choices or were those choices made for them? Is this a case of free will or is this a case of automatons walking through the paces that are set before them? I, Are I you suggesting the Pope couldn't have done anything otherwise? Well, I, I'm saying I don't know. Maybe he couldn't have. Maybe the Pope was was determined or even predetermined to act the way he has. The, the, the term automaton is offensive to me. I prefer meat puppet. <laughs> Your electrified meat. Yeah. Um, this topic actually throws a lot of the things we talk about into a whole different light. It's a very mm-hmm. fundamental topic with things because it brings up the whole issue of choice and whether things can even be said to have been chosen. Right. And let's begin by saying that this is more of an issue for us as naturalists. Um, yeah. How does free will and moral accountability work out uh, from at least from the Vatican's own point of view and that of many Christians, they do have the freedom of will. God has given them a soul which can make choices for itself. So they do take moral responsibility for their actions. They can if do not legal otherwise. Responsibility, well, yeah, but, yeah, not legal, um, as we've just discussed. But when those priests are molesting children, they could have chose to do otherwise. Now, and this undergirds, we're a counter-apologetic show, and a lot of apologetics, a lot of the cornerstones of, of religious accountabilities is, is predicated on the issue of free choice. Mm-hmm. If you, Absolutely. if the free choice is not found to be, this is how big an issue I think it is. If, if, if there's problems with free will and if determinism is true, it throws a lot of things uh, into the air in regards to moral accountability, uh, pun- systems of salvation versus punishment, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and blaming people for behavior. Uh, That's right. Um, many specific arguments rely upon the belief in free will. So for example, um, both Alvin Plattinga and William Lane Craig, who mm-hmm. we've discussed both of them on the show, oh, yeah. essential to their defense from the, the, the argument from evil, essential to that is the idea of free will. Right. The only way they can get around that, that issue of uh, is can God be 
all-powerful, all-knowing, and also a perfectly righteous God. The only way they can get around that argument is by assuming that um, human beings possess genuine free will and that they must – they essentially must possess it if, if, uh, if God is to be righteous. So you're right, Luke. Much of Christian apologetics is staked on the ground of free will. We should start at beginning at defining our terms here. What is, that, what is it that free will refers to and what is it that mm. determinism refers to? Are there different gradients Good point. of free will sure. or determinism? Well, there's – a huge range and all sorts of different perspectives. I'm, I'm going to take the definition of free will that Christian apologist and philosopher J.P. Moreland would take. Moreland uses a more sophisticated term than free will. He'll talk about libertarian agency, um, so Ooh. a free agent. Right, right. And, um, and this is what he says you have to have. That um, was Ron Paul's campaign office, <laughs> the libertarian agency. Uh, a little bit different here. Oh. Um, by agency, of course, we're talking about one that uh, has the ability as as a actor, mm-hmm. uh, somebody who can in- initiate actions of themselves. This is from his paper, Naturalism and Libertarian Agency. Mm. First of all, he says, a person who exercises libertarian agency is a substance that has the active power to bring about some intentional act. A person who exercises libertarian agency has also, number two, can exert a power as a first mover, an originator, to bring about some intentional act. In other words, this, uh, you know, sometimes they talk about God as being the unmoved mover. Mm-hmm. He is the cause to effects, but he himself is not caused. Here he's saying the same thing for uh, somebody possessing free will. In other words, our, our actions do not have prior causes. Um, so in the common we, parlance, you've chosen to do something. You, yes, whatever that means, yes. and we'll get into that in a second. You have chosen to make an action, and you could have chosen otherwise. Right. That's right. He'll add to that that a person who exercises libertarian agency has the categorical ability to refrain from exerting power to bring about some intentional act. So in other words, not only can they initiate actions, they can also stop actions. In, or or choose not to do options. Yes. Yeah. So in, in a strange sense, the free agent that he's talking about is a little bit like God. Yeah, very we're much so. We're all little gods. Yes, we're all little unmoved movers. Now, now the flip side of that, I, uh, I know when I was uh, covering this in college that there's different forms of determinism. Mm-hmm, sure. Some are hard, some are soft, but in essence they are the flip side of that, and that is is that there are uh, external and internal forces that in, uh, that influence your behavior. Right. Uh, commonly, people think of determinism as you couldn't have done otherwise, like you're standing there with a the gun pointed at somebody and you're forced to choose the trigger. But really, it means simply that there are reasons for your behavior. There are forces. There are factors at play. External that, right, prior causes. When you are making choices, those choices themselves are not uncaused. There's a they, chain of causes. Yes, a they cause are the effect. effect of prior causes. A free will person then, or most sophisticated ones, wouldn't deny that there are influences, but the difference would be that they think that the chain of cause and effect stops, Right. and then you, whatever that means, decide on an action, whereas the determinist would say that causal chain includes right. the choices to your behavior as well. 
a free will person wouldn't deny a chain of cause and effect, right? You could go with those influences that are working upon right. you from culture and everything else, but that is a choice. You've chosen to do that. You could have abstained from those actions. Right. It's, it's the presidential cabinet gets together, says, all right, this is what we recommend you do. President makes the decision. Right. He's you're not the being executive, forced. You're the yes. executive agent. This is why their idea of libertarian agency works really well with a soul because that kind of mm. answers the question of who is, who is making the decision. That idea of a little god in your head, a little unmoved mover mm -hmm. that makes its own choices. If there is uh, some sort of spirit that is the agent, well, then we could see how perhaps that's possible. Right. So it necessitates a, a certain kind of dualism. You need to believe that there's, there is some sort of non-physical entity. Now, for us naturalists who believe, you know, this is, this is all material, mm -hmm. ultimately. Consciousness. Um, the sense of you as uh, Yeah, the sense of self. All of this sense. stuff ultimately does reduce to physical matter. And so um, what's often held as a problem for our position as naturalists is we're not allowed that free agency view. How can we be free? Think about it. If your very thoughts and beliefs themselves that might motivate you to make some choice or another, mm -hmm. if it all comes down to neurons firing in the head, well, that's deterministic stuff. That's atoms, billiard balls. The outcome of any sort of event has to be determined by its prior causes. So let's just set up like a situation where you're, you're making an ordinary choice, say, let's say between Diet Coke and ordinary Coke. I don't drink pop. I can't relate to this. God damn you. Um... <laughs> All right. Well, for the rest uh, of us who do, yeah. you're, you're at the counter. You have to make that choice. Mm -hmm. Whatever choice you finally make, let's say you go for the sugar, you go for the Coke, that choice was determined by whatever the total physical state your brain was in at the moment exactly prior to that choice. Whatever was going into that, okay, perhaps you have a lot of pressure from your environment to watch your figure. Right. But perhaps from your genetics, you have a sweet tooth. Or your low blood sugar that day. Yeah. Perhaps the information that you've heard about um, a article about the dangers of saccharin or something like that. Right. All of this stuff goes together in your brain and it computes out. And whatever the end result of all that stuff is, um, that was your action. But it's hard to say that your action was freely chosen. Like you could have done absolutely anything. Rather, it's the totality of your life experience, your genetics, and really it all boils down to the physical state of the world. Wherever those neurons and atoms are right before that takes place, whatever's going on right there, there's one outcome that has to follow from that. Right. It, you can't go the, the choice between Coke and Diet Coke and choose Cap'n Crunch, okay? Um <laughs> I don't think that's what we're talking about. No, there was um, there was an excellent episode of Radiolab, which is uh, NPR's finest show. Yeah, I have to say about choice. I think we're all big Radiolab fans yeah. here. and they um, th they described it as this. It's it, it, the cereal aisle is kind of is the big choice example because there are a myriad of choices there, and as you look at each box, the sum total of all of your experiences with this particular cereal get summed up into a single feeling. And then that feeling leads to you making the choice of whether you're going to buy rice checks or 
uh, mm. Count Chocula or whatever. It's the it, all of these little voices from every experience you've ever had with that cereal come bubbling up, and and rather than um, experiencing each single one of them, you just get it, kind of the baseline experience. Like generally, you have had a good experience with Count Chocula, therefore you have a good feeling towards it. And the free will people will say, but hold on, I have a subjective sense though of stopping, pausing, mm-hmm. looking around and choosing the Coke or the cereal or right. whatever. The, the question then I always ask people in this context in the classroom is, but what caused that? But what caused that? It's an infinite regress. Right. Right. There, there was a neuron firing that caused you then to extend your hand and grab the box. What, co- what was immediately prior to that and prior to that? And so often this free will thing is, you know, and this gets into the whole like willpower thing. Well, you could have chosen otherwise to, uh, to your diet. But what would the, it have meant to have chosen yeah, otherwise? Yeah, that, that mm-hmm. sort of, that doesn't right. really help uh, this could have done otherwise thing. But things like that we just talked about, your internal state of your blood sugar or whatever, your, your environmental priming, because we've all heard of studies where you can influence people subliminally through the context. You don't have access often to the reasons uh, uh, con- they're unconscious in s- to some extent of why you do things as well. Right. Well, that's a, that's a good point. One of the reasons why, even even as somebody like me, who I'm I'm coming out now as a, a pretty hardcore determinist, mm. um, I have that same sense of free will. I have that same sense that I am making a choice in these situations. But that's because what is most readily available in my mind, what I'm in my conscious experience is most close to is that inner dialogue. I see that going on. Mm-hmm. What I don't see is all the other myriad of causes that are going on around me. What's that called in the type of bias where you, you judge just by what's at most immediately in your experience? The availability heuristic? Yeah, the availability heuristic. Thank you. Yeah, and even even William James said that there's uh, he can't fight the feeling that he has free will. But he any scientist would say it becomes hard. The more you know, especially about psychology and brain science, it becomes harder and harder to defend that. Right. Uh, yeah. be, because you realize, well, how could you account for that? Where is the you coming from? I think Schopenhauer said any man can do as he wills, but you can't will as you will, meaning that you're right. not in charge of, of the feeling of wanting to make a certain choice. Right. Yeah. What, what determined the state of your will? So free willers tend to focus – free willies – Free willies tend to focus on on the subjective sense of, oh, you could have ex- exercised control or that person's lazy. That's why they didn't do it. But uh, what they're ignoring, though, is all the components that go into making up that. You know, right, self-control right. is a, is affected by things. It's affected by genetics, by your brain state. You know, and so this is what uh, I think you gave in your free thought talk examples of like an epiphenomenalism where the conscious uh, experience might itself be caused by something else that's also causing the action at the same time. Right. It bubbles forth from some thing in your brain, and so I'm going to extend my hand and grab Conchocula is caused by something. It's mm. not the prime right. mover. It's also moved by something. We right. can see this, for example, in uh, when, when patients confabulate their reasons. Um, research that's gone into split-brain patients. Fascinating research. Yeah, so like uh, uh, the uh, you've probably heard of the split-brain people that had seizures, and so they cut the communication between the two hemispheres to stop the seizure. Right. And in ordinary situations, you wouldn't know that that person is, is unusual in any way. But then when you started testing this, and this is, was a, a work of Michael Gazzaniga, he put them in tests where actually he found that they were uh, uh, fighting with themselves sometimes over 
actions, the right and the left parts of the body. But wow. then um, if stimuli was sent to one part of the brain, so most people know that your right hemisphere is not as verbal as your left hemisphere. Right. So when messages were sent to the right hemisphere, they would do things, the, 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 the parts of the body would do things, and then it would be explained away by the other part of the body. That is, it was after the fact, the explanations like, oh, why did I just reach for that? And they would come up with some other reason, not knowing that they were stimulated. That they were, were getting it. The half the, the body. Right? So wow. they would like flash words on the screen like, get up to the right hemisphere. And then when the person got up, the experiment would say, why did you get up? And they'd say, oh, I just wanted to get a Coke or... Something right, like right. that. So, and the left hemisphere, in essence, was interpreting the behavior. Uh, they wh- knew the body had got it. up for some reason, yep. and they created a reason it for has why to be that an apologist would be. for the uh, for the movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that that leads to like normally we don't notice that because you know we're not split brain people. But think of all the things you do; it has implications for. There's other research on on normal people, not split brain patients, that they confabulate all the time. Right. That they, if you prime somebody by flashing something very quickly, it's a lot like the subliminal advertising. Mm-hmm. People will engage in actions, and then they will then offer up some explanation that's totally uh, was not the real reason, but it just seemed like that from observing their body. So those conscious deliberations that we have in our minds when we are making a choice, um, our our own rationales might be caused by forces that we are completely unaware of, yeah. that we're not in touch with. <clears throat> Jeremy, you mentioned in your talk uh, that you gave that the, some of the brain research on like evoke put, uh, action potentials in the brain, like uh, I think it was LeBay. Yeah, Benjamin LeBay, uh, basically what he did is he set them down, his patients in a chair, and he had them, um, he had them to just spontaneously decide to flick your wrist at some point. What the experiment was tr- trying to do was match up uh, the time of the decision, the the time the person made a conscious decision to flick their wrist, and when was the uh, when was the actual action potential that that signal that's mm-hmm. going from the brain down to the uh, down to the wrist to actually flick it? How did those line up? And what he found was that there was a three hundred to five hundred millisecond gap between the action and the choice. In other words, um, the the stream of energy, I guess you could say, was already going down towards the arm, already heading towards the wrist to make it flick 300 to f- 500 milliseconds before the person consciously made a decision to do Which it. is, again, compatible with the fact that that's a result. The conscious uh, part of it is a result of something else, right. the impulse, rather if, than the cause of the action. If that's the case, then the, the, the conscious, the feeling of a choice that mm-hmm. was being made was an epiphenomena. In, in other words, it was the consciousness, if anything, was just making a self-report of what the brain had already decided to do, but you perceive it as being, you know, your choice. Yeah, and the more yeah. recent experiments that really drive this home, there are, now that we have the ability to actually uh, affect the brain through transcortical magnetic stimulation. So these are those that you can form uh, paddles outside somebody's skull and have a tight magnetic field in some areas. And when you put those over the motor cortex of the brain, you can actually affect the decision somebody makes as to right or left. In most right-handed subjects, you know, most of the time when you flick a wrist, you move your right wrist. Uh, but what they did is they had that they turned on these magnets, unbeknownst to which the person who was the subject didn't know what side they were on. Right. But the experimenters could could alter what side the person uh, made the, the, the movement on, whether right or left, and the person wasn't aware of that. Again, their, their conscious thing was, oh, I just decided to do my left this time. Mm-hmm. In essence, that's what they were saying. Right. I, just, I chose right, and then I went to left. But actually, they were being manipulated by the magnetic fields of the experimenter. And, and so, again, the, they were not aware of that manipulation, but they just re- felt that it was self-initiated. We are meat puppets. 
that's you are meat puppet. That's staggering. Well, and what's so there were good philosophical reasons to believe in determinism before we had all that psychological data. Right. Um, it, it, it's you know logical arguments for establishing determinism go all the way back to Democritus. I mean, people. Plato and Aristotle, people were debating these things in ancient Greek. It's typical armchair type stuff right. where you just think it through. Uh, and, and in fact, even people like William James, who we mentioned earlier, in many ways kind of the father of, of psychology. James and Freud both wrestled with kind of the deterministic implications of psychology itself. They realized going into this field that if we're going to be studying the brain and psychological behavior scientifically and naturalistically – we're going to almost be adopting determinism as our starting assumption because right. – you, you have to. Uh, otherwise, the brain wouldn't be able to be studied. If it was just a ghost in the machine mm-hmm. that was making all the decisions and it wasn't – none of these relationships were deterministic. None of them were cause and effect. You couldn't build any sort of scientific psychology. It would all be random essentially. Yeah, That's it would why be, psychology is evil. So – Philosophically, we've been aware of this for a while, but with all this new research, and and some of it isn't really new, um, it's just kind of scandalous that the average person, and I'm guessing even the average naturalist, Mm -hmm. doesn't know about a lot of this research. Uh, But what's, what's different about this, before we had all this scientific research showing that we confabulate, showing um just how much uh, unconscious processes determine our behavior, not just our conscious state of mind. Before we had that, you could do the armchair philosopher's thing, like a lot of these apologists try to do, and just set it up as a clash of worldviews, kind of like J.P. Moreland and other Christian apologists try to do. They try to say, okay, well, if you accept naturalism, then you have to accept determinism. And there's no chance for free will and all that. But if you accept theism and if you accept a soul, if you accept a ghost in the machine, well, then we can have free agency. The thing is, they live in the same world that we do, presumably. (laughs) And how do they make sense of all that psychological research with their theological views? How do they justify their dualism in the face of that? They have to ignore multiple things like genetics, which would right. be a form of determinism, your biology, yeah. your hormones, the, the stuff we've been talking about, environmental, priming, uh, subliminal things. Uh, you'd have to ignore multiple fields. And even some of the, the religious responses I find are increasingly contradictory, just the same in, in the same way that, de- that determinism or free will was contradictory with things like original sin. Because I remember thinking of that when I right. was in college, hearing about that. Well, free will is true. And we have this original sin. How can I be said to be responsible for it if I was given bad Adam genes right, that made right. me want to go smash my brother's head with a rock? You know, uh, if if I'm making a free choice and I'm wicked, that's one thing. But if I'm original sin came from Adam, that doesn't make any sense either. And it's the same thing now that you have this. If you have a gene for a certain quality, how would a Christian respond to that? Let's say you have a gene for antisocial behavior. How would they respond to that? Uh, as being chosen. Well, that soul must make the choice. I right. mean, all that influence comes up to the point right before so your action. Again say there's, yes, and then yes, the soul causal. kicks in and it can, because it works in a causal vacuum. Uh, this is why some people refer to, they, they don't believe in contra-causal free will. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the soul operates in a vacuum, it can make a choice that isn't determined. So all that goes up to informing the choice, but then this other entity um, kicks in. But that just can't be maintained. That dualism has to collapse. 
I, I think a, a great example of illustrating this, uh, but it goes along with everything else we've been saying, is, um, of course, that famous story of Phineas Gage. I, I'm sure everybody here knows who Phineas Gage is. He, uh, Phineas Gage was a railway foreman working back in the eight, middle 1800s, and he was a, a place. He, his job was to uh, place explosives in uh, and blow some rock apart, and they had this bar that you tamp it down with uh, the dynamite stick. And I don't know. Yeah, you know he tamped down the ball a steel on bar the, right onto the so the, yes, the the blast blew the bar through his uh, up through his eye socket and not the top of his head. Which right. was a devastating wound. If you can see his skull, uh, they still have that, and the, and the size of the rod is just incredible. But he survived. Yeah, the blast. but it was a very specific injury. I mean, it, it was it, very localized. The world's so first. So don't uh, try this at home. Yes, I'm going to have a lobotomy. Yeah. Well, to everybody's amazement, the guy just stands up after this yeah. is happening. He like, was bleeding, he, and he walked and he it survived off. The infection, but. Uh, and the behavioral problems were immediately known. At first, people thought this was championing that idea of free will because, look, his brain— you Blow I mean, the top of your brain <laughs> off and you're still and walking and talking. And he's just normal Phineas right. just being his grand old self. But whereas bef- what they noticed was as he, after he healed from the accident, though, whereas beforehand Phineas Gage was known to be responsible and somewhat sober and everything, then he became profane and impulsive, and he couldn't keep a job and fly into rages. So he was a, he joined a band. No, he um, <laughs> he was a, the behavioral part was he couldn't inhibit his impulses anymore. Essentially, he became much more coarse and not uh, able to plan for the future, which is now what we know with uh, the frontal lobe in the brain. That's the job of executive planning. I sh- right. I'm gonna do this. Maybe I should do that. Right. Everything else that. was working just fine, but that executive planning thing was knocked out. Now, from a dualist's account, let's imagine if if you, who you are, yourself, is a soul inside of your brain, and you're influenced by all this biology, how would the dualist possibly account for this? Is Phineas Gage, is he, is his soul in there, inside somewhere, saying, Oh no 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 no! Don't be crass. Don't be rude. Do some planning here. I want to choose this, but but the the brain, because it's damaged somehow, um, you know, can't do that. The the soul can't interface with its biological mechanism, and and he's just trapped in there. Or is it like the Matrix? Right? Neo gets a roundhouse kick to the face in the Matrix, and then he starts bleeding in the real world. So if you get brain damage in the real world, will your soul get damaged? Will that get restored when you go into heaven? The, the dualism, when we start looking at it in the light of what we know about psychology, it just falls apart. It becomes riddled with all these where's difficulties the and contradictions. In that head, where, or if you're Phineas, where's the you in that? And since it's, it's, if it's spread throughout the brain, the areas that make decisions of no, don't say that, don't insult this person – are distributed to various areas, and there's no one of which is in any one part. Right. And so when you right. talk about, oh, he could act morally, he could have done the right thing, how is that tenable in, in the face of the fact that, that uh, it's localized in different parts of the brain? And I, I know for me, I, I remember the exact day, I remember where I was when I was driving, and I heard this. Um, it was an NPR story about lobotomies where I finally went, holy crap, there, there is no, a soul makes no sense. Oh, was that the it, one where they, the kid was lobotomized and now he's a he's an adult and the, he was just like an out of control yeah. kid and and then they yeah I heard that story and, too. and and you know just the fact that really core personality attributes can be altered by a physical change to the brain yeah you are not the same person Phineas Gage after that was not the same Phineas Gage he was like a different person right 
Right. So, so the this mind soul uh, duality does not make sense. And you work it your, doesn't work. You and that's work a hard way, thing to deal with. Work your way out from the extreme cases like his, though, to normal cases. Are there sure. genes that affect your brain? Are there? Uh, do you have a different biochemistry than I do? Right. Uh, so if and work your way into maybe instead of blowing rods through people's head, you have a gene that makes the frontal lobe weaker. Right. Does that mean that that if you're a criminal or you're less able to have exert willpower to control yourself, that you're to blame for that? There's a you that made the decision. If you have a gene that f- that forms your brain to be less impulse or more impulsive or something like right. that we follow down this rabbit hole and there's yeah. uh, there's more questions than there are uh, Here, answers here's a study that uh, Luke made me aware of and I share it with my philosophy students every time I teach on this subject and I notice that it really this one probably more than any of them tends to bother people in the class uh, research on bonding with uh, children infants with their mothers yeah the oxytocin of pregnant women was sampled throughout the pregnancy and after, and interactions with infants were observed and mothers interviewed. Oxytocin predicted maternal bonding, including gaze length, vocalizations, affectionate touch, attachment-related thoughts, and frequent checking. All of this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Luke, but by measuring the levels of oxytocin, they could predict the amount of time, the distance the mother would hold the child away yeah. from their face. That's why I use things. that examples because it kind of the most fundamental things that uh, that people have that they hold are like oogie, baby, gooey thoughts of like you know oh but surely your attachment to your surely child the is love not for my child is, is not, not mediated in any situations. way through a, a biological mechanism right. or something as coarse as that. It's it's me. It's the soul yeah. that you know, we bond. But the even thought that, that we could <laughs> squirt a little bit more oxytocin or take a little bit out and you could be different in how you show affection yeah, to your children. Yeah, in fact, they, they're studying uh, genes of, uh, of animals where you can knock out the oxytocin-producing genes and you produce, and it, it, within the animals, it correlates with things like bonding behavior that, that when they're Rat pups are going to give, you know, rats are going to give birth to pups. They lick them more and they have this oxytocin. And people read that and they say, well, that's interesting with the rats. Or there's even a, 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 a species of vole that's very monogamous. Like after they have sex, hmm. the male and the female bond and they have extremely high levels cuddle. of oxytocin. They yeah. cuddle and watch TV. And so people read the animal studies and they're like, oh, that's kind of cute, but not me. Right. When right. you show something like that that shows, no, even you, that there are hormones and peptides and things like that in your brain that predict certain behaviors that mediate certain affectionate behaviors, that's disconcerting to people's sense of free will because we have the impression of I my love relationships or whatever are are initiated that's, from uh, it's my It's such go- an emotional thing yeah. that, that it's right. hard it's me to that's uh, doing it. reduce it to chemicals. And, and so as a result, I think even hardcore naturalists like us are going to struggle with this research. What What are the implications of this? How do we then think about morality and even ourselves, our self-conception, our self-identity? Right. Who are we? Are we, Where are we in the brain? What defines the borders of, of you? We can clearly see how this is a problem for the theologians. They can try to bank on the idea, well, that their particular metaphysics will allow them free will, but I'm sorry, the data on how everybody behaves. Presumably, there were a handful of Christians in some of these studies. Mm-hmm. And really the way everybody behaves shows these marks of determinism. So I think it's pretty clear how what problems the theologians will have with this. But it doesn't mean that we, we get off scot-free. Naturalists have to deal with this too. Is J.P. Moreland right when he says, if moral and intellectual responsibility has freedom as a necessary condition— 
then reconciling the natural and the ethical perspectives is problematic. In other words, <laughs> what sense do we make of the whole enterprise of morality, of ethics, right. of law even, punishing people and sending them to jail for certain actions? If we do accept this determinism unflinchingly, where does that leave us? And we're going to bring up those issues in our next episode. We're going to try to deal with the problems we as naturalists might have with determinism. Mm -hmm. So make sure you tune in to check that one out. And uh, those of you out there who are naturalists but not as uh, hardcore in the determinism as uh, I think all three of us are, please write in. Um, yeah, uh, it's not like there isn't significant debate even in our camp about these things. And right. we'd like to hear your challenges and questions and emails, of course, sent to doubtcast at gmail.com. We're going to finish up this week with an update on the uh, discussion we had a couple of episodes back about the atheist ad campaigns that are running um, now throughout the world. Um, this on um, buses in Barcelona, or as they say there, Barcelona. They're running ads just like the ones in the UK, only in Spanish, uh, ads on the side of buses that read, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And eat tapas. <laughs> It has been branded an attack on all religions, according to uh, this article from The Guardian. Barcelona is the first city in predominantly Catholic Spain to copy the uh, controversial UK campaign that reads, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy life. Quote, it is time for nonbelievers to make themselves seen and display their pride in their own convictions, says the Catalan atheist group. Uh, the campaign has provoked a reaction from the Catholic Archbishop of Barcelona. Faith in God is not a source of worry, nor is it an obstacle for enjoying life, says the uh, Catholic Archbishop of Barcelona. Who's, uh, who's bound to be celibate and uh, right. do the Lord's work. And, uh, it's no source <laughs> of worry yeah, yeah, whatsoever. And forced to maintain his yeah, views yeah, uh, yeah. on pain of eternal punishment. Exactly. Yeah, if yeah. you don't do it just right, then you're going to <laughs> That's hell. not going to detract yeah. from a... Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they are allowed to run these campaigns despite the uh, Catholics' complaints. So now, uh, whether you are an English or Spanish speaker, you go to Europe and uh, you can be greeted with uh, sweet little reminders that life is okay and there probably is no God. How do we do that here? <laughs> because when we do, there are pitchforks and knives. Yeah. We need a bus campaign here. It, it, it's amazing to me, actually, that, that we don't have these in the United States at all, and they have them in Spain. Well, we, we were talking about all the sign campaigns that we do have here right. in America. I just happen to think this one would be a better one. Uh, it, exactly. It sounds, it sounds a lot more positive. I, for one, am inviting them to bring this ad campaign here to uh, – to West Michigan and the United States in general. And then we could have a bus burning coverage if uh, anything happens. <laughs> bus burning. We're, we're producing our own <laughs> Think of the piles. <laughs> a bus Drive another one on. <laughs> I saw the 50, uh, a, a flaming hulk on the side of the road. <laughs> all right. That's all for this week. Stay tuned next week for the second part of our look at determinism. And we'll see you next week. 
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 